Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is sports journalist David Davis. We are discussing his new book, Showdown at Shepherd's Bush, the 1908 Olympic Marathon, and the three runners who launched a sporting craze. Published by Thomas Dunn Books in June 2012. Historians of the Olympics agree that the 1908 London Games were the most successful and influential of the early Olympics. One of the many highlights of these first London Olympics was the dramatic and controversial marathon race. The first runner to enter the stadium at the race's end was the unknown Italian, Durando Pietri. But with only a few hundred yards to the finish line, Pietri collapsed to the track. Officials rushed to his side to offer help, and Pietri continued to advance, but he fell four more times before finally reaching the end. The famous photograph of the race's finish shows the runner breaking the string on wobbly legs, while two officials appear to be guiding him to victory. Indeed, it was decided later that Pietri had finished the race only after receiving aid. He was disqualified, and the second finisher received the gold medal, an American named Johnny Hayes. However, in the aftermath of the Olympics, it was Pietri, not Hayes, who became an international celebrity. For the rest of his life, Johnny Hayes' accomplishment at the 1908 Olympics was obscured by Durando Pietri's celebrated struggle to the finish line. This race, and the attention it brought to the marathon as a sporting event, is at the center of David Davis's new book. David tells the story of Pietri and Hayes, as well as the famous Canadian Onondaga runner Tom Longboat, who was the favorite going into the 1908 marathon. He weaves the three runners' biographies into a history of the early Olympic Games and the beginnings of the marathon, which was a race invented specifically for the Olympics and then gained popularity in Europe and especially North America. Whether you are a running enthusiast or someone who simply prefers a brisk walk, like myself, you'll find much that is fascinating and entertaining in David's book. In our conversation, we touch on only a bit of what his book offers. So let's turn to the interview. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is David Davis. David, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Bruce. So I'll ask you first to say a few words of introduction. Can you tell us about your background and and what led you into sports writing? Sure. I grew up in New York City, went to college in upstate New York. I was the editor of the college newspaper, so was always interested in journalism. 
uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles in 1986. Uh, I very soon afterwards started working at an alternative newspaper, the LA Weekly. At the beginning, I was more of an editor. Uh, I actually was the managing editor for a while. Um, And then I also was editing the sports page that we were doing, and we were one of one or two or three alternative uh, sports uh, news weeklies with a column. And, And in a sense, that helped define my sort of my attitude and my uh, maybe my bias about sports writing, which is we we considered ourselves alternative, meaning uh, we always tried to look at sports a little differently than mainstream reporting and mainstream newspapers. Um, whether that would be commenting on a a certain uh, issue in a certain way, uh, or finding stories that the mainstream just didn't see. And so, in, in a sense, that's that's sort of my background. And eventually, I ended up writing uh, for for the weekly as a staff writer. I was writing a column and writing features. And uh, since 1998, I've been a, a freelance writer, and uh, all always based in Los Angeles, and have written for newspapers, magazines all, all over the country, and contributed to a couple of books and. Uh, curated a couple of sports photography exhibits and uh, which led to my first book which was about sports photography in Los Angeles. And so what brought you to this particular book? How did you come upon the story of the the 1908 Olympic marathon? I guess twofold. As a a kid I remember I, I was one of those kids who would just sort of leaf through those photography, sports photography books and I remember that the very, very famous photograph of Durando Pietri uh, at the finish of the 1908 marathon. And it's such a dramatic photo. And I, I remember just staring at it and, you know, in, in sort of wonder and knowing somehow that there was something a little bit deeper than just this this guy crossing the finish line. Um, so that was sort of, that was always in the background. And as I said, I've written quite a bit about sports photography over the years. Um, And when the 100th anniversary was starting to come around, uh, which would have been, of course, 2008, 100th anniversary of the 1908 Olympics, I I did a story and started looking at that, what was going on uh, in that photograph of Durando Pietri. And it was one of those things that, as a as a journalist, as a as a writer, you start seeing these. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Not necessarily coincidences, but you start realizing that this story has so many levels. And and beginning with the fact that, let's say, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was was at the stadium that day when Durando was at the finish line, and and he writes this incredible game story for. The Daily Mail newspaper in London that gets reprinted around the world and really helps to grow the legend of Durando Pietri and and this race. Um, Irving Berlin's first hit song is called Durando. Um, so you start seeing these little connections that this this story has has a broader range than just a race in 1908, and and you. You do more research, and other things pop up. For instance, the fact that this is the first marathon at 
26.2 miles, the, the standard distance that we run on. And so how, you know, so you ask yourself, how did that happen? How did, why was it just, uh, why was this the first race at 26.2 miles? Question mark. And, you know, as a reporter, you start digging in and you start seeing all of the, um, all of the connections and, and that this is just a great story with a lot of layers that, that really was no, was not really known in the United States. I would say it's known in, in, in Britain for sure in Ireland, perhaps, and, and certainly maybe a bit in Canada as well. Um, but, but not really in the States. Yeah. And this is something I really enjoyed about the book is it, it does have these, these multiple layers, these, these multiple threads and, and you do a great job of really, really tying them together. It's, you know, it's much larger than a story about, uh, three runners in one race. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was, that was both the challenge and also the the joy of this story. The challenge being as a as a writer and and certainly as my the first uh, full length narrative book. Uh, you know, I that was a challenge for me as a writer to to try to juggle all that, and I I, I probably uh, didn't succeed always in that. Um, but but certainly the joy of of, uh, of of finding three great characters to 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 base the the, the narrative around. And, and then following them and, and, and seeing what stories they each brought out. Mm-hmm. So. so before we talk about the, the race itself and these three principal characters that you describe in the book, uh, one, of the, one of the other layers that you look at is the, the early history of the marathon as a, as a running event. So I want to start by asking about that. When did the, the, when did the marathon as a running race begin? Yeah, and this was something I, I didn't know much about before researching this, but it, the, the first marathon race, technically the first international one, is at the first Olympic Games, the first modern Olympic Games, 1896 in Athens. And uh, there, there were a couple of trials, quote-unquote, that, that the Greeks did uh, to, to choose their team, uh, for that race, but but the first international was was 1896, and it was an invention by Pierre de Coubertin, the the founder of the modern games and the IOC, uh, in a sense as, as a tribute to ancient Greece, Greece, and a connection to the the glory of Greece uh, in, and Olympia. Um, and with with some prompting of a colleague, uh, Michel Breal, they devised this race, and it was a total anomaly. I mean, when you when you consider that really the longest race, other race on the Olympic program was a mile, and then here you go up to 25 miles in one leap. I, I mean, that's astounding. No one. Knew had no one trained for it certainly, and no one knew how to train for it. It was it was just so far ab- above and beyond what what was being raced uh, by most of the the athletes, and 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 most of those athletes at the time, I, I would say, a lot of them were you know college kids, it, it, certainly in the states, or university kids in 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 other parts of the world, or they were in clubs you know, New York Athletic Club or, or, or one of those things. So this was this this invention was outside of those bounds, um, outside of the university system, outside of the club system, outside of the AAU system as it would be in the States. Um, uh, so just a complete break. Um, and, and yet at at 
1896 because a Greek runner uh, won the race. It, it was the, the highlight of the games. And right after the 1896 games, the marathon as a race did gain some popularity in, in North America and Europe, correct? That's correct. And, and really, uh, the first one in the States is in September of 1896. But then you have Boston, of course. The, the first Boston Marathon is in 1897. And um, that sparks this uh, event and it becomes a really a major part of the Northeast. Uh, you've got a lot of runners coming up from New York to, to race in Boston. You've, of course, got the New England kids uh, doing it. And then it also seeps up north into Canada. And you've got uh, cities like Hamilton and Toronto and, of course, I think Montreal as well, starting to develop some, dis- some, some really good distance runners. And... Um, so you really have this this northeast corridor that becomes a a a bit of a marathon uh, haven, and again at the time there is no set distance. So it's it's all, all these races are about 25 miles, um, and in a sense that part of it that nebulousness of the distance um, is both its charm, but it's also it sort of shows you well it it, it doesn't really seem firm yet. It's not completely established uh, as a race, as an event, if everybody's doing it at a different uh, distance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that takes a while to develop. And of course, um, in 1908 at the Olympics, that's when you get the standard distance and um, really, in a sense, starts legitimizing the, the marathon as, a, as an event. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, David, because I don't. I'm, I'm sure many listeners have seen a marathon or know someone who's run a marathon or perhaps even run a marathon themselves. So that so they have an idea of what motivates a marathon runner and what the training is like and what goes on at a marathon today. But for a little perspective, can you tell us who were the first marathon runners? How did they train? And and just what did these events look like? These early marathons in the Northeast. Well, that that was that was a fascinating aspect of 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 doing some research on this. Uh, most of the early marathon runners were blue collar guys. Uh, these were sturdy uh, pressmen, or they worked at a you know at a printing press. They they had some time after work maybe that they could train. Um, certainly, the mileage that elite marathoners do in this day and age, nothing even close to that uh, back then. I mean, they just did not know that you could, uh, and they probably did not have the, the time, the leisure time, to to run, you know, 100, 125 miles a week. Um, back then, not even, not even close. It was maybe you did 10 miles here and there. You had a long run on a weekend when you had some time off work. Um, as you can imagine, their their shoes were, I mean, sport. You know, Spalding is just, which is sort of the the, the first Nike of its day, um, is just starting. They they don't have a, a running shoe of for distance. They maybe have some some spikes or something or little or a, a couple of shoe models that are ostensibly for distance. But these are compared to what we would run today. I mean, these are slips of leather. And, and of course, it's interesting now. The whole barefoot movement is coming back now. Um, in a sense, that's more 
akin to what was what they were running with back then. I mean, just horrible equipment. Um, certainly, diet and um, training techniques were rudimentary. Um, you know, people discour- a lot of trainers discourage their athletes from drinking water, for instance, uh, which of course today would just be uh, seen as seen as and is very uh, harmful to the body. Um, if if you were in extremists, they would say, you know, here's a shot of brandy or or, or, or maybe something even worse. Um, so so there was a lot of ignorance around the marathon and, and training, and a lot of it was considered your willpower. It was considered, you know, you had to be uh, tough enough, so to speak, to, to get through it. It was a survival test. It wasn't an athletic event that could be mastered, whereas I think that's the attitude now. And still they were running under, there were marathoners running under three hours. Yeah, no, exactly. Their, their times were pretty good. And, and certainly if the weather was cooperating, um, they, they, they chalked up some good times. I mean, one of the, one of the three runners that I follow, of course, was, was Tom Longboat from Canada. And I mean, his 1907 Boston Marathon, I mean, that was a, that was a quick time. Uh, very you know cold weather perfect for perfect for marathon running and 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 he just you know sort of smoked the course there so you mentioned that uh, trainers would tell runners to not not drink water and this was you know really striking in in reading the book in fact i read some of these passages out loud to uh uh, out loud to my kids who are cross-country runners, you know, the what was given to runners as refreshments during the race. So can you tell us about the, the drink and the food that was offered to early marathoners? Yeah, but it, it was bizarre. Um, certainly, um, actually, it's interesting. One of the, the um, I guess one of, it would be considered one of the first sponsors ever of the Olympics was, was, this, was OXO. And uh, which is in in and there are companies still around today, and they would have you know oatmeal or uh, um, I guess it was a, a form of um, bouillon to give to their runners, which in a sense I guess is some water. So maybe that's not so so bizarre, um, but certainly uh, you you also may be referring to to. Some of the, I guess, what we would consider performance-enhancing drugs these days, which certainly in 1904 and, and, and 1908 it was strychnine, and you know, again, I would, had no knowledge of what the heck this was about, and come to find out that it, back in that time, cyclists and other endurance athletes were were given strychnine. Um, at certain stages of the race to, to give them some energy, to boost their energy. I guess it's a, a form of a stimulant. And uh, I, I'm, there were reports of, there are reports that, that some cyclists died. Um, I, I think, I, I, I don't think any, we, we know somebody died in, in 1912 in the marathon at the Olympics. That was as much about the heat as anything else. Um, but certainly in 1904 at the Olympics in St. Louis, the, I mean, the gold medal winner in the marathon is given strychnine and brandy and hot water uh, on a very, very hot day. And I, I'm, I'm totally surprised that that guy did not die. 
And when and when they were running, they would they would they would stop at the refreshment tables, right? And yeah, true. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. it, it, you know, they'd they'd stop, they'd stretch. You know, they'd they'd uh, have a brandy, have some yeah, champagne. Exactly. And uh, I mean, I think they they saw this as, again. It it wasn't so much a race as we see it today. Um, it was an endurance test, mm-hmm. and did you have it in you to, you know, to sort of man up and finish? Um, whereas again today, with our training techniques, et cetera, it's it's it, we know we're going to finish it. You know, these elite marathoners, they know it, it, it's it's more a question of how fast is it going to be and what the course is going to be like. So another layer you have in the book is uh, early Olympic history. And uh, and how the marathon connects into into the early Olympic Games, and uh, one event that you talk about in the book, which is typically overlooked in Olympic history, are the Games in Athens, not in 1896, but in 1906. So, can you tell us about these these second Athens Olympics and and why you see them as significant? Yeah, that, it's a great. I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, the, the 1906, the, the intercalated games, um, are, they're not, they've been sort of whitewashed from history by the IOC by the, in, the, in terms of the quote-unquote official Olympic history. You won't find them um, in, in, in the IOC. Um, but I think Olympic and sports historians, and I, I tip my hat to a lot of the academics in this regard who, who have studied this, they look at that 1906 as, as, as being very crucial. Um, it, it's hard to remember today as we approach London, the early Olympics were flops. I mean, 1896, yes, it gets it off the ground, but, but certainly the, the athletes themselves were not the world-class athletes, and there, there really wasn't this, this feeling of, okay, we're watching the world's best at, at, at each event. Uh, 1900 was a complete flop, and, and that was in Pierre de Coubertin's sort of hometown of Paris, and uh, he had uh, paired it with a World's Fair and to disastrous results. There were athletes there that didn't even know that they had competed in the games. Uh, 1904, also a complete flop. They were in St. Louis. It, it was basically an all-American games. Uh, very few European and, and very few Canadians came down to St. Louis to compete. So it was basically an all-American games um, and run by a rival of Dick Coubertin, uh, James E. Sullivan, the head of the AAU uh, in America. And that, too, was a flop. And so you're looking at, you're standing in 1904, 1905, going, well, the Olympics movement, the modern Olympic movement, hasn't really produced a whole heck of a lot. Not much media, not much interest, and, and the athletes certainly not really caring about it. The, the Greek government, um, which had glor- gloried in the success of 1896, w- was also a bit of a rival with de Coubertin and, and wanted a share of the games. Their, their idea was that either Athens would be the permanent host of the Olympics, which Coubertin, you know, of course rejected, or that they would be this by end, you know, they would be in the break years in, instead of the four years. They would be the every other, uh, the two-year, I guess, biennial uh, site of the games. 
and that's sort of what they were they were striving for. And again, a little bit of a power play. Cooperton had not really uh, consolidated his power. He was being uh, attacked by Sullivan, and, and as I say, the, the Greeks were also trying to get in on it. So they scheduled this 1906 games. Um, Cooperton, by the way, did not even attend them. And they're, they're noteworthy for two reasons. First off, they were, they were very good games, um, great athletes. The Americans sent over a, a, a high-quality team. Canadians sent over a high-quality team, and they, they won the marathon, uh, uh, sharing from, from, from Hamilton, one of the Hamilton boys. Um, and the British did also send over a, a good team. So there was great competition there were some things that we still they were the first to bring in the, the teams marching together as a as a national team um, whereas before you were yes you were considered an, an american let's say but you were you you didn't have an, an american uniform you were you were more more or less representing your club or your college or whatever 1906 that that begins to change so so that's certainly one aspect of it the other aspect that that goes down in history of course is just before, just prior to the start of the games in 1906 in Athens, um, Mount Vesuvius had exploded in in outside of Naples, and this was sort of the last straw for Italy, which had been scheduled to do the 1908 Olympics to host the 1908 Olympics. Uh, Rome was was the, the the host city, and uh, due to the fact that they were having some economic problems. They withdrew from the 190 as host of the 1908 games, and this is discussed in Athens in 1906. And it's first broached that London and England would take over the games in 1908, and which eventually does happen later that year in 1906. On very short notice, London steps in and and takes over as host. So, so I I, I look at those 1906 games in Athens as significant. And one other note on that, Durando Pietri, uh, who of course becomes the centerpiece of the 1908 marathon, he competes uh, in in Athens in 1906 in the marathon. He does not finish the race. I, I, he had cramps and, and dropped out, and he it was a a bit of a harsh uh, uh, rejoinder for him. He had been so successful throughout Europe, and this was a. Um, a, a bit of a slap in the face for him, and um, I, I, I think it served as some incentive for him to to get back to the Olympics uh, in 1908 and to try to win uh, the gold medal for Italy. So, following up on that, I'll ask you to talk about uh, you, the three principal characters you look at in the 1908 marathon. So, Dur- Durando Pietri. Uh, from Italy, Johnny Hayes from the United States, and, and Tom Longboat from Canada. Can you give us something of a, a thumbnail sketch of these three principal characters? Sure. Um, be glad to. And the, the first thing I'd say on all three of them is um, they came from very, very poor uh, setting. Uh, their common denominator was just was, was poverty. And uh, and both Hayes and Duranda were, were were very very small, and as people have speculated that they just were had you know malnutrition and just never really had enough to eat when they were younger. Um, so beyond that, uh, Durando from a small town in in Italy, um, his his parents were very very poor. His his dad sort of 
tried to make a living as a as a farmer, not very successful. Um, but he he grows up and he's born in a time, you know, 1880s, 1890s, when Italy is started has has coalesced into a nation, and there's a lot of pride in in that. Um, and he's growing up at a time when Italy is is just beginning to to flex its muscles as a sporting nation and very into, uh, for instance, the bicycle and cycling is, is really the first big sport uh, to, to, to take over Italy and transfix Italians. And Durando, uh, he's, uh, that's his first love is cycling. Um, uh, apparently he had a bad crash, a bad fall, and so he decides to take up running. And he's very, very successful um, at, at distance, certainly um, in Europe. And yet, because of um, he, most of his races are in Italy, he's not well known outside of the country and maybe outside of France. Um, in 1906, he, he competes in the Olympics, but, but doesn't do so well. And not many journalists take note of him, certainly at that time. Um, and he had dropped out of school at an early age. He worked at a pastry shop uh, in uh, uh, in Italy, and uh, of course, all the journalists, all the writers, love to talk about him being a you know working in a in a candy shop in a sweet shop. Um, so that's Durando Pietri, and of course, uh, the, the Johnny Hayes from New York City. Irish-American lad. Um, his father had emigrated from from County Tipperary, from a, a small town called Nina, um, and worked at a bakery, coincidentally worked at a bake shop. Uh, Johnny, pretty, the family was not wealthy at all. They grew up in tenements in, in lower Manhattan and then upper uh, in the Bronx. Um, and he his parents die at a, but before he's 19. He's he watches uh, his younger siblings. They they are taken to orphanages. Um, this was one element of the story I was never able to track down completely what what orphanages they went to and whatever happened to some of that, um, which was disappointing. I I only had dribs and drabs of that information, but certainly Johnny and his. Uh, his younger brother Willie, who were not put in orphanages, they had to make a living, and they became sand hogs, which was they they dug out the New York City subway back in 1905, 1906, and that was you know the ugliest, muckiest, smelliest job you can imagine for you know a few bucks a day type of thing, um, and he learned to sort of translate that, and he he could run. He was never the fastest. But he found he could run for a long, long time, and he was beginning to get a reputation. 1906, 1907, starting to run at the Boston Marathon. Again, he couldn't necessarily stay with the front runners, but he had a sense of pace that he could come on at towards the end. And of course, that comes into play in 1908. Um, and Tom Longboat um, really. Um, of, of the three, to me, the most fascinating character, and again, somebody I didn't know much about going into the research of the book, and it, it was one of those things, you know, gosh, am I, you know, am I going to be able to find anything on this guy? Type, and then come to find out 
that he's probably the most famous athlete going into the 1908 Olympics, um, in in part because of his background. He's Native American, he's or Native Canadian, excuse me. He's an Onondaga Indian from the Six Nations Reserve um, in Ontario. Uh, grew up very, very poor. His father died when he was very young, and you know had to support his mother and. Uh, he was dragged off to one of the schools where um, Indians at that time were, both in America and in Canada, that to be, in a sense, re-educated in the white man's way. And I, I put those, of course, in quotes. Um, and he ran away, uh, ran away once, was recaptured, taken back to school, um, and then he finally ran away and was never taken back. Um, so he grows up at a time when Canada also is beginning to emerge as a as a nation. Um, so they, at, uh, many Canadians, are so are very proud of Longboat as as a Canadian, but they're also very wary and and come uh, and 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 look at him, examine him as a Native American, as a lesser person. Um, and I, of course, emphasize this was the the mode of the times. Uh, the prejudice of the times, the racism of the time. and um, But Longboat has just this extraordinary ability, um, and he wins races in Canada, uh, beginning with under the tutelage of, of another Indian, Bill Davis, and then um, he is, in a sense, co-opted by, by the white power brokers in sport in, in Canada, in Toronto, and uh, taken under the wing of uh, a white trainer, manager, promoter named uh, Tom Flanagan, who, in a sense, guides his career from from 1907 or 1908 on. And uh, Longboat is, you know, his victory in 1907 at Boston is makes him a celebrity. But his relationship with Flanagan and the very, very tricky issue of amateurism versus professionalism starts to come into play and and that's why in a sense he's the most famous athlete because he's controversial on this uh, amateur professionalism uh, issue which um, uh, again gets a little complicated but but James Sullivan the head of the AAU is in a sense trying to get Longboat um, disqualified so that he can't compete at the Olympics. So before we talk about the race itself, one one other thing that we need to talk about is the course for the London Marathon. And as you said at the outset, this is the first marathon to be set at the now standard length of 26.2 miles. So so how was this course made and decided on and why did it come to be this length? Again, it was it was fascinating to to look at this issue um in the sense of uh, uh you know, how does uh, how you know how do we get measurements how do we get these standard distances and the the myths that have arisen around this race and the, the marathon it, it, it's 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 pretty amazing and there, and it's still being repeated to this day um as to how the course got to be 26.2 miles um when when london took over when england took over uh, running the games for for 1908 the athletics part of the Olympic program or the marathon part of the Olympic program was sort of handed off in a sense, in a sense, outsourced to a, a running club, the Polytechnic Harriers. 
and a gentleman there named Jack Andrew, he was put in charge of devising a course. And, and when that happened, basically he was given a rubric of the course is about 25 miles, which was what all marathons were back then, about 25 miles. That was sort of his, in a sense, his instruction. His other instruction, um, he, he, knew that, he knew that the ending was going to take place at the stadium, which was being built in the neighborhood of Shepherd's Bush, uh, which was the grounds of a, a World's Fair. And so he knew that's where it was ending. And he was basically told, try to stay away from the, the city part of London so that you, know, you can be, you can be dis- less disruptive uh, for the marathon. In other words, if the marathon's in the city, it's, it's, you know, we're going to have to hold up traffic and all that sort of thing, because back then they weren't really doing that for marathons. So... so in terms of devising that, he, you know, he takes a look around and goes, well, the, the greatest place to start it would be, it, it, on his wish list, would be Windsor Castle, or such a symbol of, of British power at, at a time when Britain was the world's mightiest superpower. Um, and, and he could then sort of take the course a little bit north and wind it around into the stadium, and it would sort of avoid central London and and... By doing so, the course sort of lengthened, and uh, Andrew had to deal with complaints or, or, or um, uh, the city municipality saying you've got to you know, tweak the course a little bit here, tweak it there. Uh, it, it took some time for, the, for the, the king and the queen to sort of give their okay, that it's okay to start on the grounds of Windsor Castle at the last minute. The stadium, the entrance to the stadium was changed around so that the runners would have to go to another uh, part of the stadium to enter the stadium. And then instead of running around the normal counterclockwise, or they would, have, uh, they would do a clockwise, uh, two-thirds of a lap. So things changed on him a little bit, and he kept tweaking it and kept changing it. And finally, at the end of the day, it was t- Somewhat randomly, somewhat haphazardly, it was 26.2 miles. And again, it was, it was his intent to, to, to start it at Windsor Castle. It was his intent to end it at the stadium. But all of the tweaks and everything that happened, you know, was just stuff that he had to deal with. Um, and not only was that such an odd sort of random measurement, but it was also longer by far than a lot of these guys were thinking about in terms of training. I mean, you're, if you're training for a, a, a race that's about 25 miles, and then you have a race that's 26.2, that's a big, big difference. And I think that really has some impact on, on the end result. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that end result. So let's look at the, at the finish of the race, if you can mm-hmm. tell us about that. And tell us about the, the controversy surrounding it. And that, I, that would bring us back to this picture you, you remember sure. looking at. Yeah. Sure. Um, and and before, I, before I get sort of inside the stadium, um, um, Longboat is, uh, um, is the favorite. He's among the leaders for much of the race. Um, and this was, this was a part of the, the, again, a part of the research that I, that I thought was fascinating for me. Because even in reading a lot about this race, the newspapers covered it at the time very well, but historians and, and so far afterwards, they really go right to the ending. 
and and you don't get a sense of how did the race flow. And looking back, you know, Longboat was among the leaders for much of the race until the 20th mile, around the 20th mile, when when he collapses with heat and again we, we possible ingestion of some performance enhancing drugs. Durando was among the leaders. Uh, the, the leader for much of the race in the beginning was the British runners. Uh, they went out way too fast with the heat and the home crowd and, you know, wanting to sort of prove something for, for the old country. Um, and, and they were out very early. Uh, but South African Charles Heffron was the leader for much of the race. Durando, second. Johnny Hayes, third. Um, approaching sort of the last couple miles. And Heffron just slowed and was done. And Durando, right outside the stadium, uh, passes him. And we, we don't know for sure in terms of what exactly happened outside the stadium, but there were reports later that he ingested some strychnine right outside the stadium, uh, right before he entered. He enters, when he does finally enter the stadium, he comes down this long uh, uh, alley and uh, aisle and, and, and then comes to the track and... Uh, you know, it's now about five. Uh, gosh, about five thirty in the afternoon. It's hot as you know, Hades. Eighty thousand people have been waiting for this moment, and they see the, this little Italian runner in bright red shorts and a white shirt, and he is out on his feet, and he doesn't he doesn't remember, or he wasn't told, or he does you know doesn't remember that he's supposed to go a certain way, which is not the normal way, in other words, clockwise versus counterclockwise, he starts to go what would be the normal way, counterclockwise, and he's pushed back the, the, the way that the race was supposed to end, which was clockwise. Um, and he, he has about two-thirds of a lap to go, about you know 350 or so yards, and on that cinder track, he collapses before he reaches the finish line five times. And the commotion in the stadium, again, 80,000 people, the Queen of England, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, pecking away at, uh, at his game story, watching this young, uh, obviously almost semi-conscious, unconscious lad trying to finish a race. And it, it was an amazing moment. And there's film clips of it. And, and this is the first time that we, we that, that, that there's significant motion picture footage of the Olympics and, and of a climactic moment of, a, of, an, of an amazing event. And watching him try to struggle was, uh, it must have been just this amazing sight. And he finally, at the end, is sort of helped half staggered, half propelled over the fish line. He, he does finish first. But because of all of the assistance that he re received from, including Jack Andrew, the, 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 the man who uh, devised the course, and a, a doctor, Dr. Michael Bolger, because, and, that, and those are the two figures that you see surrounding Durando in the famous photo at the, at the finish line. But because he received that aid, um, he was eventually disqualified. The Americans uh, protested. Uh, they, he was disqualified for receiving aid, which was against the rules. Johnny Hayes, who had passed Heffron right at, outside the stadium uh, and finished second, was given the gold medal. Or, well, not given, but was awarded the gold medal. Uh, he found out about it when he, had, when he was at a, at, at, back at his hotel and uh, 
Heffron was second, and a, a, another American, uh, Joseph Forshaw, took third. So it, it was this, extra, and it was the last day of the, it was the last full day of Olympic competition, and at the time, you know, the, the marathon being that that sort of great event where you you just didn't know what was going to happen. Well, that's exactly what happened. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and it it, it made. The, ne- the next day at the um, at the award ceremony, I mean, Hirpel had thought Durando had died. Some of them and, and some newspapers had proclaimed that he had died. Um, he comes striding in the next day in a nice suit. Um, he doesn't get a gold medal, of course. He gets a gold cup from the Queen of England personally. And even though Johnny Hayes gets the gold medal, Durando is certainly he, he's the star. He steals the he steals the moment, and. Everybody and anybody writes about this, this race and this effort and and what it all means, and um, uh, it, it it gives that gives the marathon or these guys, Longboat, Durando, and and Hayes, um, uh, sort of another chapter because of this because the race itself is so famous. So as you mentioned, uh, Durando, you know, people are writing about this this dramatic finish, and Durando really becomes. You know, a, an international sports celebrity in the in the aftermath of the Olympics. So, can you tell us about his his moment of fame, which actually goes on for for quite a while? Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. I mean, he, he uh, right afterwards, uh, Conan Doyle um, um, raises money uh, for Durando, which in a sense makes him a professional. <laughs> uh, maybe he didn't even realize that, but, but he. It, Back in the day, you to reward a, an athlete's efforts, you would raise a subscription, so to speak. And uh, Conan Doyle raised all this money, and so Durando went home thinking, "Oh, I, I, you know, I made all this money. My life is set." Um, I don't think he saw necessarily a future because he's now not a, not an amateur. But he gets a call in uh, later that in 1908 from some promoters at Madison Square Garden, who are experienced in putting on fights and on putting on uh, the six-day bicycling events. And their idea, and it's a, it's a brilliant one, is to match the local hero, Johnny Hayes, uh, the gold medalist, with Durando Pietri in a one-on-one marathon at Madison Square Garden the day before Thanksgiving on, in 1908. And uh, this becomes just and um, the the sports story certainly of the end of that year, and and it's competing by the way with the or by November of course the baseball season's over, but the, the great New York Giants Chicago Cubs pennant race, and this almost steals that glory later, uh, later a little bit later, but um, it, it transfixes all of New York City. You've got the Italian American community coming to root for Durando. You've got the Irish American community coming out for Johnny Hayes, and and they're written about like prize fighters. You know how how long their strides are, how big they are, what they're eating, you know how they're training, that sort of thing. And it begins this it, it it's short-lived but but very uh, popular marathon mania. And Durando manages to beat Hayes in that sort of rematch. And then he, in turn, is matched against Tom Longboat, who comes down from Canada to Madison Square Garden and with all of his Canadian backers. And, and he races against Durando one-on-one and beats Durando. And they start sort of barnstorming all over. Durando races, I mean, I, I, I lost track and it was staggering. I mean, he would race three or four marathons in a month. Um, 
I mean, he's making incredible money, but he's doing incredible damage, of course, to his body. Um, and other, there's such a popular um, uh, pastime that, I mean, some of the biggest, uh, or some of some people that we now know are some of the famous songwriters, uh, Irving Berlin, as I mentioned, I think before, you know, writes his first hit song, and it's called Durando, and it's, I mean, it's this hilarious little ditty about uh, marathon mania, in a sense, um, and, and people are just talking about it. Um, and it climaxes, really, the, the biggest event is they, they finally get away from the one-on-one format and do this, what they called a marathon derby at uh, Polo Grounds, the baseball stadium, in uh, the spring of 1909, and it's a $10,000 purse, which, you know, is, is, is huge money back then, especially for athletes. Um, and uh, Longboat is in the race, Hayes is in the race, Durando's in the race. They bring Alf Shrub, the great British distance runner in, Henri Saint-Yves from France, and, and another uh, New York Irishman, uh, Maloney in. And, and they race in the polo grounds, um, and Saint-Yves wins in, in, a, in a bit of an upset. Um, so it, 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 it transfixes the, the nation um, gives these guys another life and, and in a sense legitimizes the marathon because now the marathon isn't seen as just a, you know, once every four years or once a year thing like, like the Boston Marathon. Now it's seen as competition. And there's a lot of betting involved. There's a lot of excitement involved. And, you know, some of the younger kids or, you know, what were then kids could now look up and go, hey, you know, I want to try to do that. So one thing that we should clarify, though, when you talk about these these marathons at the Polo Grounds and at Madison Square Garden, you know, and something that struck me is that they didn't start in Madison Square Garden, go running twenty six miles around New York and finish. <laughs> right. No. Good, yeah. Good point. I. You're right. No. It, I mean, it was an indoor marathon in Madison Square Garden, and you know, endless laps. <laughs> um, and I, I can only imagine what that must have been like to watch for two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> um, and as I mentioned, you, you know, you had a the Irish American backers brought their band. Uh, the so the, you know, there's music playing. The the Italian Americans brought their band, so music's playing and everybody's betting. And it, it, it's sort of like those uh, six day cycling events, which were which were a phenomenon back in the day. And people would drop in and watch for hours and then, you know, go home and come back and watch some more. So it was, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's, it's the dawn of entertainment. Uh, and what made it possible was the photograph, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's words and other columnists, and also that first footage that was, you know, you could now see in a Nickelodeon. You could go watch, oh, that's what Durando looked like. Oh, my gosh. Uh, whereas before, you know, you couldn't tell that, it were, or it would be a drawing or something. Um, so now, you know, fans, sports fans, um, had, a, had a sort of a, a visceral, direct connection to, to the athletes. And, and I think that uh, led to, to this wave of, of marathon mania, where they wanted to see these guys run and see what would happen. And, hey, maybe he's going to collapse and die. <laughs> You know? So there, there was some of that element as well. <laughs> so another key part of the story that we have to talk about before we finish is is how the distance of the London Marathon, 26.2 miles, became the standard distance for the race. Because at first, after 1908, 
you have these marathons in there again at at varying distances. So how did this become the standard length? Um, you're, you're you're right. I mean, what, during Mar- Marathon Mania, they were trying to do it at that twenty. You know, they, what they called the London distance um, at twenty six point two miles. Uh, but certainly, the, the the Olympics in 1912 in Stockholm were were you know it was its own distance. Um, what happens is after the war, when the Olympics are revived in 1920, um, soon after that, I think it was the next year, 1921, when the IAAF, the the governing body of track and field, um, finally sort of took not not control of the marathon, but but sort of took it under its wing as an event uh, as a track and field event and said okay look we've got a uh we've got to put an end to this that everybody's running just different distances and calling it a marathon what we're going to go from here on in is we're going to use that london distance and that's that and by 24 1924 you know the boston marathon uh which is the oldest continuum continuous marathon and the olympic marathon are 26.2 miles and, and really, after that, everybody falls into into line, and uh, and that becomes the distance. So, David, we're almost out of time. I want to ask about moving away from from 1908 to to later in the 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. You you write that there was this surge of popularity, this this marathon mania in 1908 and 1909, but that that quickly died. Uh, today, though, there are marathons held around the world. There are magazines devoted to marathoning. Uh, you know, marath- marathons are, are a big part of uh, not only track and field, but just the running world. So what, what brought the resurgence of the marathon? Yeah, that's a good question. And, I, I, you know, I, it's, I, if uh, that be a good book, right? <laughs> but... Um, Really, it's it starts. It's part of sort of the fitness moving, movement that comes in the 1970s, um, sparked in America certainly by Frank Shorter's win in Munich in 1972, um, and his silver medal in, in in 76, and surrounding that this this idea that running, jogging, you know that word. Um, it, it, it's healthy for you. Is a good thing for you, and you've got the joy of running and um, you know Jim Fix and you know health and fitness gurus who are saying running is okay. And part and parcel with that is just as technology sort of helped spur sports in the first decade of the you know the 20th century, you've got technology in the form of you know Bill Bowerman creating great shoes that sneakers uh, at Nike uh, to run and Adidas stepping up. And, and so it's not so uncomfortable to run, to run vast distances. Um, and I think the other major component in, in the fitness movement and why marathoning is so popular today uh, 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 beyond just the elite level is, is you now have women starting to run and, and joining that, joining in. And, uh, um, you know, women were banned from the marathon as late as the late 60s, early 70s. And so their participation really sparks um, this, this broader movement into distance running, endurance running, and, and both as a, as a healthy way, healthy exercise, but also, you know, as, as I'm sure all of us, you know, know people who are running, you know, 
to uh, you know memorialize a friend or to help uh, raise money for cancer or this or that, and it's become this sort of cultural touchstone uh, in a way that was unimaginable, certainly back in 1908. So the last question of the podcast is always what what you're working on now, and I I take it from your your chuckle at the last question that that you might be working on the <laughs> <laughs> the rest yeah. of the story, the history of marathons. <laughs> You know, I I actually, <laughs> it's a good question. I I actually had an had a had an idea to do the um, Abibi Bakila, uh, a biography oh, yeah. of, uh, of him. Of course, the the sixty and nineteen sixty four champ. I, I don't think I'm going to go that route. Um, I, I I am doing you know my journalism out here. Um, I'm I'm working on a book proposal. It it right now i i don't want to talk about it um just because i don't want to jinx it <laughs> to be honest <laughs> um i can tell you it involves uh it it certainly the story starts in that same era of that of 1908 1912 and again what i consider sort of the beginning of modern sports the dawn of modern sports as we know it and it involves an athlete in, in that range and like I said, I, I I'm just working on the proposal right now, and I I just don't want to jinx it until, hopefully we we can sell it uh, a little bit later this fall, and if and if we do, then I then I then I would love to talk to you about it. Okay, well, I won't. And, and I apologize. I apologize. I'm not trying to be cagey or diff- evasive. Diff- no, difficult. no, no, no. We won't we won't scoop you here. So, <laughs> okay. but uh, no, I'll say about this book that uh, this was really an an enjoyable book to read, and uh, I was surprised by a lot, as I said, and I think you know for listeners who are runners who know runners. Uh, I would recommend this book. There's there's a lot that is you know once again going back to drinking brandy during a during a marathon. That's <laughs> there's a lot that is surprising and and educating about uh, the early history of the marathon. So David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Bruce, and and good luck with with what you're doing. I, it, it's really important that uh, sports writers uh, both incredible bestseller popular writers uh, and and people like myself who you know this is my first full narrative book uh, it's great that we have a chance and a, and a venue to to talk about our work and i really appreciate the time you've been listening to an interview with david davis about his book showdown at shepherd's bush the 1908 olympic marathon and the three runners who launched a sporting craze published in 2012 by Thomas Dunn Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like the Middle East, Russia, East Asia, and Africa. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.